We're kicking off a series tonight that we're calling King Tales. And in this series, we're taking a brief look at Israel's second and third kings. We're going to start this series tonight on the day that David was anointed. And we're going to go all the way up until the day that Solomon prayed and asked for wisdom to lead God's people. And as we look at how God worked through the lives of these two kings, that we look at the stories of these two kings, it's going to help us have a, an idea of how we can embrace God's plan and purpose for our lives individually. We can take the principles of the tales of these kings and apply them to our lives here today in 2023. So tonight, we take our text from 1 Samuel 16 and 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord, the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks where? At the heart. Man looks at the outward first and then hopefully works their way into looking at the heart as best we can. But God works in the reverse. He starts in the heart and works his way out. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Tonight, we're talking about what God accepts and what God rejects. Now, often it's the, it's the unknown and the unheralded. It's, the, it's, the un, uh, it's those that are seemingly insignificant that throughout history that have risen to acclaim and have been people of great import and impact in their world. In God's economy, in the kingdom of God, routinely in scripture and in modern times, you see God elevating and using people that nobody in the world would have given a second chance to. That nobody in the world would have ever said, wow, they're going to be something great for God. I've shared this many months ago, but even myself, even your pastor, I had a I had a minister tell me when I was, at, I had a rough patch as a teenager and, and none of my family was attending church at the time and I, I, was, I was attending church on my own and I was, I was struggling and trying to do right and really came from, many of you know my story, very broken home and, and lived on the street as a teenager at 14 years old and, and just had a very broken childhood and, and teen years. And I, and I had a minister, a pastor figure in my life, uh, look at me when I was a teenager and, and didn't expect me to amount to anything and, and said, you know what, I give you, he said, I give you six months and you're going to be backslidden and out of the church, messed up just like your family. <laughs> Thank you for the encouraging word, my brother. <laughs> uh, and, and every time I tell that story, I like just tacking on to the end. I'm still here. <laughs> I hadn't gone anywhere. Didn't go anywhere then and, and haven't gone anywhere, not going anywhere now. But sometimes uh, we see people where they are. Uh, minister who's went on to be with the Lord, great elder of the faith by the name of T.F. Tenney, he used to say, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. <laughs> and And... If you see somebody greatly used of God, you know they didn't get there by accident. And you can just rest assured that there's been some days of struggle and suffering and, and adversity in their life. And, uh, it, you know, I, I thank God. God's called me to lead uh, people and pastor and preach and share the gospel. But if you would have seen me as a teenager, you probably not would have you wouldn't have voted me most likely to succeed. If you would have seen the childhood that I came from, you probably would not have said, wow, he's going to do something great uh, or do anything at all in the kingdom of God. But God has a habit of using people that man overlooks. God has this unique ability. It's really the power of redemption. 
to redeem situations that are beyond broken, that are beyond hopeless and helpless, and make something beautiful out of them when those situations and those lives are put in his hands. Our King of Kings, he looked beyond what humanity sees, and he sees potential in your life and in my life that maybe the people around us don't even see. So can I tell you, even at the beginning of this lesson tonight, that when you look at your current excuses or your present circumstances or whatever's wrong in your life or your background or your family challenges or your life challenges as excuses as to why you can't ever live radically for God like that, whatever that is, or you can't ever do anything radically for God uh, uh, like God has tried to put in your heart. I'm telling you, when God looks at you, he looks beyond all of those obstacles that you see. He looks beyond all of those things. He calls us, watch this, according to what his grace can do in us and through us. And let me tell you, those two ideas are inescapably linked. What God's grace can do in and through. Everybody say in. And everybody say through. They are tied together. If you don't hear anything else I say, hear this tonight. Okay? If you don't hear anything else in this lesson, you got to hear this tonight. God can only work through you to the level that you allow him to work in you. And if you don't let him keep working in you, then he cannot keep working through you. There are some people who want to be greatly used of God, but they don't want to be challenged by God. <laughs> well, there are some people who want to be greatly used of God, but they don't want to be challenged by others. Those ideas don't work together. God can only work through you to the level that you allow him to work in you. We look at this King David that's anointed in our text, that's being anointed in our text. And David was a man, as we're going to see tonight, who was literally overlooked by everyone around him. The king was to be anointed from Jesse's household. But yet nobody in the house, nobody in the family, nobody in Jesse's household thought that David would be the one to be anointed king. Even the man of God. You think it's bad what a pastoral figure said to me. But even the man of God in our text, even the prophet Samuel couldn't fathom that David would be the one that God would choose. But yet God chooses David anyway. And can I tell you a secret? God chooses you anyway too. God still chose David, and God still chooses you. God chooses you with your warts, bumps, inadequacies, idiosyncrasies, issues, <laughs> and all. Because he knows that as long as you're willing to let his grace, that's why I tell people all the time, whatever place you're at in your walk with God, don't stop. Don't stop. We've got people here at the sanctuary, it truly, I, I, I'm so grateful. We're, we're not a perfect church, we're far from a, a perfect church, and, and, and sometimes I tell people that, I think it scares them away, because they might have this false idea that they're looking for a perfect church. We're not a perfect church, because we got a bunch of people, and like I said, there's some pretty messed up people in our world, and we are some of them. Don't think yourself so high and mighty, we are some of them. So we're, we're, but, we're, but we're working really hard. We're, we're trying really hard. One of the things I love about a sanctuary, the sanctuary is it's a safe place for people at all different places in their walk with God. There, there's, people, uh, there's people who are coming to God on any given Sunday that have 
almost no faith experience, no faith understanding, and there's people who have grown up, and they've grown up from generations of attending church and, and living uh, biblical lifestyles and diving deeper in the Word of God, and their lives are benefiting from generations of righteousness practiced in their family. And then we got people coming to God that don't know Genesis from Revelation. And it's a safe place for everybody just to keep going forward in their faith. Keep going forward. And I promise you this, I'm, I, I, I'm not going to chastise anybody who's going forward. You may only get one degree better per day. Just keep getting better. Just keep growing in your faith. Well, and I, I'd rather have someone who's a level seven out of a hundred that's struggling to get to eight than someone who's a 95 that's slipping down to 85. Well, can I tell you in God's economy, direction is as important as position. Well, what are you saying? I'm saying don't feel inadequate if there's Bible concepts you don't understand or stories you don't get or you feel like the, the more you know of God, the less you know of God. That's okay. Don't feel inadequate. Don't feel disqualified. God chooses you. God calls you. God has a purpose for your life. God has a plan for your existence. God chooses you. And as long as you let his grace continue to work in you, it's the process of sanctification. Sanctification this theological concept does not happen in an instant. Hear me tonight. The day you got saved, the day you repented of your sins, the day you were baptized in his name, the day you were filled with his spirit, that was not a day that you received a spiritual or religious diploma. That was a day you received a spiritual birth certificate. You didn't graduate that day. You started the process of a new life that day. Does that make sense? And so I, I, I just want to encourage someone to die. Just keep going and keep growing into all that God wants you to be. And if you're growing in him, you're going to have questions. If you're growing in him, there's, gonna, there's days I, I've got two theological degrees and I have studied the Bible and preached and taught in occupational ministry for well over 20 years and there's still times I read the Bible and I think, man, I don't know anything. I, I don't get it. Lord, you're blowing my mind. The more you know him, the more you realize you need to know him more. I'm... Yeah, I'm, I'm on a bit of a rabbit trail to start this lesson tonight, which is not a good sign. But yeah, I do feel like I'm, I'm in the Holy Ghost. I'm telling somebody, don't stop growing in God. Don't stop growing in your faith. You will have, if you want to get, if you want to have an off-ramp from your faith, God is calling us to deeper consecration, deeper commitment, always. That's the way his kingdom works. It challenges us to more. You will have every opportunity for an off-ramp possible. People will discourage your faith. People will talk down about your faith. Uh, your own flesh will try to talk you out of your faith. As God calls us to deeper commitment and consecration, how many know that our flesh hates that? Our flesh doesn't want that. Our flesh doesn't want God's way. Our flesh wants our flesh way, right? But just keep growing, keep growing in God. And God chooses Questions, issues, problems, and all God chooses you. We see in our text, in the story of Saul and David, that man often mourns what God rejects. God's design was not that Israel would ever have a mortal king, an actual king. The only sovereign that they were to bow to was God himself. God himself was to be their ruler. And, and here's how he wanted to rule them. If you look at the Old Testament, God wanted to rule Israel through priests or prophets. What we would, what we would in the New Testament church, we would call pastors or religious leaders, if you will. God said, I want to rule my people, not rule in a negative sense. That I, I can't explain 
uh, every Old Testament concept here tonight. We'll never get through the lesson. But not rule in a negative authoritarian context, but lead his people. He never intended that that would be done by an earthly political king. He always intended that that would be a prophet or a priest or a preacher, a pastor, a, a, a religious leader, a God-fearing leader. But watch what Israel did. Israel got so distracted by the governmental patterns and the governmental affairs of the nations that surrounded them, they began to demand that they have a man on the throne too. They wanted a political leader like the nations around them had political leaders, and so they started demanding this. And despite God warning them against this, despite the prophet of God warning them against this, Israel made the grave mistake of measuring their success by the natural metrics of the world around them rather than measuring their success by obedience to God. In God's kingdom, if you're obedient to him, you're successful. You may be disregarded, dismissed, or even disowned by people in this world, by family, friends. But if you're obedient to God, in God's economy, you're a success. God had delivered them out of bondage. God had been there when no one was there. God had brought them out of Egypt. But yet, they measured their success by how they measured up against the world around them. Hear me tonight. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you cannot measure your discipleship and growth. You cannot measure your life by what the carnal world around you is doing. You cannot measure your life by the latest trends or fashions or fads in society. You cannot measure your life by what is a societal, commonly accepted practice or rejected practice. You cannot measure your life by any of those things and be a successful disciple of Jesus Christ. You must measure your life by His Word. I must measure my life by His Word. In response to Israel's insistence, God finally acquiesced. He provided them a king. And, and this, this would later prove, even, we'll see in our lesson tonight, to be a great heartache for Israel because sometimes God will give you what you ask for even if it hurts you. Sometimes you ask him enough, God will let you have what you want even to your own demise. That's why it's imperative that we consider his ways, even though our hearts may yearn for something else. My flesh, there have been many times in my life, my flesh wanted this, but that wasn't what God wanted for me. My flesh wanted this, but that wasn't what God would have right for me. And so at the outset, the, the man that they wanted, this man Saul, who would be Israel's king, he, he, he was a a good man in the beginning with a humble spirit and, and we trace the journey of his selection as king we find this young man who accepted counsel from the man of God the priest the prophet the pastor in his life who worshiped and and prophesied who hid himself from public acclaim and 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 wasn't living for the praise of others but sadly that wasn't the end of Saul's story Saul's disobedience led to God's rejection of Saul. Saul's failures were, were many, but ultimately it was his direct disobedience, his direct rejection of God's instructions that brought about his downfall. In essence, you'll see, this is what Saul did. He looked at the words of God to him, and he said, uh, I think I can do better than that. Uh, I don't think that's for me in this situation. Eh, I don't think that applies to me. And he did his own thing. And when he did his own thing, he lost the blessing of God and he fell as the anointed king. The Amalekites, they were the avowed enemies of Israel. They, they had filled the, the cup of wrath in the heavens with, with, with all, of their, uh, all of their actions against the people of God and the plan and the man of God. And so God sent word to Saul the king of Israel, this newly appointed king of Israel, by the prophet Samuel, that Saul was to utterly 
destroy Amalek. He was utterly to destroy all of them and all of their possessions. Nothing was to be spared. This is Old Testament judgment. And, and God says, I want you, Saul, king, to go completely wipe them out of the face of the earth. Every single one of them and every single one of their possessions so that there is not even a trace that they were ever there. Now, that you say, wow, that's serious. Yeah, that speaks to God's profound hatred of sin. God loves the sinner, but he hates sin. And you say, man, I thank God we're living in a New Testament world. I do too. But there is coming a day where we're all going to stand before him. And there is coming a day where all the works of this earth are going to be burned up. There's coming a day of judgment where we're all going to stand before him and we're going to answer for the lives that we lived. God still hates sin. We're just living in a day of grace. I'm thankful for that. Aren't you? God said, I want you to completely destroy Amalek. I want you to completely wipe them out. And, and, and this hatred that God showed for sinful ways, it should have convinced Saul that God was serious about this issue. He was serious about sin. But instead, Saul, after receiving the word from God, takes it upon himself to evaluate the Amalekites in his own limited scope of understanding in his own human reasoning and through the lens of his uh, reasonability and not through God's. And so as he looks at the situation, he says, oh, it's really not that bad. Kind of mirrors how we're tempted to look at societal issues even today, right? God says, it's sin. It's bad. But Saul said, oh, it's really not that big of a deal, is it? And Saul makes this grave mistake to evaluate the Amalekites from his human, limited, cultural perspective rather than the lens of God's word and God's righteousness. And Saul chose all by himself to spare parts of the Amalekites that he didn't think were too bad. He said, we'll let them be. God said, this is overt rebellion against my word. And God judged Saul and no longer allowed him to sit on the throne as king of Israel. Verse 23 of 1 Samuel 15. This is what God said through the prophet Samuel. God sent the same prophet Samuel who would anoint the king. He sends the same prophet to put his finger in his face and say, for as rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness. In other words, Saul, you did your own stubborn thing here. You refused to do it God's way. It's as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you from being king. Now, can I tell you, this is not popular in 2023 Christianity, but I thank God for preachers and pastors, and I'm going to, if the Lord will help me, strive to be a preacher and a pastor that can do just like Samuel, that can anoint and bless when God says anoint and bless, but can challenge and confront when God says challenge and confront. We don't just need we don't just need a brand of Christianity that's all anointing and all blessing and all favor because we're humans, we're flawed. And so there's a time that we need to be anointed and blessed and there's a time I, we need to be challenged and confronted. I want to be that kind of child of God. I want to be that kind of man of God. Saul's disobedience broke his relationship with God and severed his approval from God. And then Samuel, the prophet, he mourns what God has rejected. Now, it might be easy for some uh, to assume. It might be easy for some to assume that this was an easy task for Samuel. But Samuel, if, 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 let me tell you, if there's, if there's a man of God like Samuel with a true heart for God, you see that true heart for God, and he did not enjoy correcting Saul. He didn't enjoy confronting Saul because he understood the dire consequences of that confrontation. He didn't enjoy it. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's not the true heart of a shepherd. Again, 
I, I said it earlier, not even connected to this lesson earlier in, in the service. There's frauds in every field, in every industry. Well, you, you show me somebody who enjoys just punching people in the face with their words, that's, that's not the heart of God. I don't, I don't care if it's a pastor, a preacher, a leader, a saint. You enjoy somebody, somebody who, I don't care if it's a teacher, an instructor, a boss, somebody who loves just bearing down on somebody, just busting somebody's chops. That's not the heart of God. That is not the heart of a true shepherd. Samuel put his finger in Saul's face and said what needed to be said. And then he went away and he grieved. He went away and he grieved. I remember distinctly seeing my pastor one time when I worked in the church office for a period of time, I knew he had a confrontational conversation where he had to, he had to confront some issues with, uh, with the family in the church and very difficult situation. And, and I, 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 I just knew, based on what I knew of these people, it wasn't gonna go well, they weren't gonna receive the confrontation very well and, and I think that's how it played out. And, but I remember watching that day, my pastor go into pre-service prayer because it was a uh, it was a service day, and I remember watching him go into pre-service prayer after that meeting, knowing the general nature of what the meeting was going to be about and how it was going to go, and and I, I remember listening to my pastor pray, just with heavy burden and weeping and tears and just just normal pre-service prayer before service, but man, he was so burdened and so broken. And I knew what it was. He was burdened and broken with the heart of a shepherd because he didn't enjoy what just had to be done, confronted and called out. And you see that in the heart of Samuel as well, a brokenness. He grieved that he had to confront Samuel Though, though Saul's actions were wrong and, and grieved God and probably grieved Samuel and angered Samuel too. Uh, and Samuel was the one to rebuke him. The Bible says in verse 35 of, of chapter 15, it says, nevertheless, it says Samuel went no more to see Saul. In other words, Samuel cut him off, which that's a message all on its own. When you're dealing with somebody who's truly rebellious and living in rebellion, it's good to take a note from Samuel and distance yourself. Rebellion is a cancer, and it's a contagious cancer. Okay? Samuel distanced himself from him, but he didn't joyfully distance himself from him. The Bible says, look at that next phrase. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. He mourned for Saul. He wept for Saul. Now, parents, if, if you're a parent here tonight, and you've ever had to really get on or punish your kid or correct your kid, and if you're any kind of good parent at all, you know, you've said something like, this hurts you less than it hurts me or hurts me more than it hurts you, right? And kids think you're lying through your teeth. But if you're a loving parent, you know that's true. You know that's true. You don't enjoy punishing. If you enjoy punishing your kids, you need help. If you enjoy punishing your kids, I can recommend some good counselors for you to talk to, okay? You need to talk to them and get some help before you do long-term damage. They... We don't enjoy punishing our kids. What, what do we find from this? We, one of the points we take from this is that God never promised that being obedient to his word and doing his will would be easy. Samuel's obedience to the voice of God not only caused him this profound level of grief that says he mourned what he had to do. His emotions, uh, you know, it literally, that word more, it literally means his emotions were touched like emotions would be touched when by the death of someone you love. So doing the will of God for Samuel did not exempt him from mourning. Let me say it again. Doing the will of God did not exempt him from pain and mourning. In fact, doing the will of God in this case led him to pain and mourning. <gasps> that goes against the image of the sunshine and rainbow Jesus that's presented in our world. <laughs> that you serve Jesus and everything's sunshine and rainbows, right? No. Y'all, life can be difficult when you're doing the will of God. Life can be difficult when you're not doing the will of God. 
So I'd rather face the difficulties of life with God on my side. If you're going to have difficulties in life, whether you're serving God or not, I'd rather be serving God and have him on my side. Sometimes life's difficult because of hell's attack. Sometimes life's difficult. We blame hell, but it's our own foolish choices. Uh, sometimes it's the result of just living in a fallen world, in a sinful world. But, but God, sometimes following God, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, means we're going to go against societal norms, just like Samuel did. We're going to go against societal norms, which means we're going to face opposition. But again, it's God's approval that matters, not the approval of society that matters. I thank God. I'd love to be in good relationship with all of our uh, leaders in the area. Uh, I've, I've met many of them or most of them and uh, our, our political leaders, our governmental leaders, our mayors and, and, and police chiefs and, and, and congress people. I, I, I'm thankful for their leadership and I'd love to be in good graces with all of them. But when it comes down to it, I am not living and I am not leading the church of God to, to please them. I'm going to please God. I'm going to do what's right before God. And, and you don't have to live through many sunrises and sunsets to know that you're going to endure some days of difficulty and some days of challenge. Uh, and like I said, redemption doesn't mean that it's all going to be sunshine and rainbows. We know that Samuel proves that doing the will of God can sometimes lead to tears in our eyes, can sometimes lead to rejection. Here, he had a relationship with Saul, and now he is separated from Saul. God's rejected Saul, he's rejected Saul, and probably Saul rejected him too. But obeying God requires that we sacrifice our own desire, our own comfort, our own lifestyle, our own comforts, because God's plans for us are greater than anything we could engineer as plans for ourselves. Can I tell you, if, if you do it God's way, if you just do it God's way, His way is better than your way. If God's put it in your heart to build a business, let me tell you, if you do it God's way, it's going to be better than if you do it your way. If you honor God, it's going to be better than if you honor self. If you're building a family, it's going to be better if you do it God's way and honor God more than you honor what society or family expects of you. God's way is always better. But doing the will of God is going to force you out of your comfort zone. It's going to force you to embrace some uncertainty. But we've got a promise that he will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll never call us to a place that he's not already there and ready to be with us. So we see Samuel searching for a new king as the story of this, this, king transi this transition of kings unfolds. With the end of Saul's reign, it's been pronounced, and now we're on the hunt for a successor. Who's going to take the place? Now, it's interesting thought that the decision had been guided by God. This decision had been guided by God to set Saul down. And now the decision had to be guided by God to appoint the new king. Because human perspective and human ability had already proved a failure. Remember, they were the ones who said, we want a king. God said, you don't need a king. They said, we want a king. God gave him a king, and look how it worked out. Saul appeared to have every natural advantage. He, he, he was the popular choice. He was the, he was the one that, that, that everybody looked to, head and shoulders above everybody else. Uh, and, and yet his leadership ended in ruin. And we look to Saul's story today to routinely discuss the pitfalls of leadership. That, that Saul is this incredible example of someone who started out right and, and burned up and, and, and burned out. God was now going to lead them to appoint a new leader. Who would Samuel find? Who would God lead Samuel to? Now, it's, it's important to understand that as Samuel's looking for a new leader, this prophet of God, Samuel, Samuel's the pastor, Samuel's the prophet, as he's looking to appoint a new leader, his own life is in jeopardy. I mean, do you think Saul, just because Samuel says, God's rejected you from being king, do you think he's going to take lightly? To now this prophet walking around looking for a new person to point and say, you're the king? No. He wouldn't have looked too kindly upon that. Uh, th those that would have heard about this 
uh, I mean, those fateful words from Samuel to Saul. It, it, verse 28 of 1 Samuel 15, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you and has given it to a neighbor who is better than you. Can you imagine standing before the king as the preacher, as the prophet of God, and saying that? Those, I mean, consider how Saul had been hand-selected at one point and now was utterly rejected by God. How in the world could he be God's man and then not God's man? Hear me. Because God honors the condition of your heart and the condition of your life. He is not bound to honor you irregardless of what you do. Well, and if you think that God is bound to save you and honor you no matter how you live, try telling your spouse that they're bound to stay with you no matter how you live or what you do. They'd say, huh, I don't think so, honey. <laughs> There's this covenant called marriage, and you can break that covenant. God is bound to principles. He's bound to his word. And, and, and the life that reaches for righteousness through faithful obedience and honest integrity, that's the life that invites the blessing of God. So for Samuel to proceed with anointing a new king, this had to be a dangerous concept for him, and I won't spend much time here, but, but this had to be a dangerous concept for him to consider that, you know, it's not unreasonable to think that Saul would, could have had him arrested and executed for, for trying to go reach to anoint a new king. Yet God gave him clear instructions. In chapter 16 and verse 1 of our story, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? In other words, quit crying over what you've lost, what I've rejected, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. He said, fill your horn with oil. That was what they would use, the oil they would use to anoint a king. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. In other words, it's time to get up and move on. So you've experienced loss, get up and let's move on. So the king has been had the kingship ripped out of his hand. It's time to get up and it's time to move on. You may face opposition living for God. You And opposition can be intimidating sometimes. But we have clear instructions. We've got to get up and keep living for God. We've got to live for God in the shadow of, of fear of what he thinks of us, not the shadow of fear of what others think of us. Amen? Now, when he goes to anoint a king, and I've got to hurry here, when he goes to anoint a king at Jesse's house, this Jesse the Bethlehemite, Jesse from Bethlehem, uh, you can only imagine the, the tumult that, that ensued when he shows up at Jesse's house, the chaos that comes when he says, I'm here to anoint the next king of Israel. One of these boys is one of these boys is gonna be the next king of Israel. Now you talk about sibling rivalry. <laughs> that would have taken it to a whole new level. Can you imagine having a dozen sons and walking in and saying, I'm about to give my entire inheritance to one of you based on what happens in the next hour of your day? Sibling rivalry on a whole nother level. And Samuel sees the oldest son, Eliab. And he sees him and immediately he assumes, based on nothing more than his stature, his physical stature, him being the eldest, his appearance, he's good looking. Samuel instantly envisions, this is the kind of guy that God's going to this is the one that's going to be draped in royal robes. This is the, what a striking king he's going to make. But verse 7 of chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature. I've refused him. It's not him. For the Lord doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But God looks on the heart. <laughs> David 
represents God's choice. Eliab represents man's choice. Man looks at the outward appearance. But God says, I'm looking for something more tangible than that. You know, it's likely that Samuel could have been confused by by what God said. God's disqualifying the one who looks better, is taller, stronger, older. and, And yet God says, God doesn't see this like you see it. I'm looking at the heart. You're looking at what's on the outside. Can I tell you, God's criteria, God's criteria for being great in the kingdom of God is not what man's criteria is. God is interested in character, integrity, and an unbridled passion for the things of God. Peter called it the hidden man of the heart in 1 Peter 3 and 4. Let it be hidden in the heart, incorruptible beauty of quiet spirit. It's precious in the sight of God. But Hebrews says it's not hidden from God. There's no creature hidden from his sight. Th- those attributes that are, are only discernible to God himself are the hearts of humans. That's really what qualifies or disqualifies someone for being used of God right out of the gate. Can I tell you? Walking in obedience to him, walking in the fear of the Lord, walking in in true integrity of heart, it may lead to rejection from others sometimes, but it will always lead to an identity in Christ that is secure and protected in him. Brothers and sisters, we've got to learn to value what he values and accept and celebrate what he accepts and celebrates. It's imperative that our choices are not made by our own fleshly values, but that our value system has to match heaven's value system. I think it goes without saying, the world's value system does not match heaven's value system currently. But our value system as believers, we have to daily strive. Remember I said, just get one degree better every day, just 1% better. We've got to strive that our value system of our life will match his values in Scripture. God doesn't give favoritism based on connections or family or talents or appearance or any of that. God values character over competency. Most institutions in our world will hire competency first. If you're good at the job, if, if, you're, if you're really, really good. Can I tell you, in the kingdom of God and in God's economy, we value character over competency. We, we, we just talked about this to the worship team just recently. I, I would rather have someone who has a deep relationship with Jesus Christ who is walking and living in integrity and humility and plays well with others. <laughs> plays nice in the sandbox. On this platform leading worship than someone with the voice of an angel that has a rotten spirit. We, I personally and pastorally will prefer character over competency every single time. And I don't think you have to choose. I think you can have character and competency, but I'm telling you, God chooses character first. I I remember in 16 years of traveling and evangelizing, I preached at some churches that, man, they had, you know, they'd hire the best of the best. And I remember one place in particular that I preached and, and man, they had some hired gun talent that they'd bring in and, and musicians that were out of this world and some singers that would absolutely blow your mind. But getting up and preaching after that was a, a spiritual battle because even though I didn't know, I knew in my spirit there were some serious character issues with the people that they were bringing in and putting on that platform. In God's economy, character and integrity will always win out over talent and ability. Give me somebody who's of solid character, integrity. You know what integrity means? Integrity, think of the difference between a solid steel block and a gray painted cardboard box. A gray painted cardboard box may look the same as a solid steel block, but when you put pressure on them, 
one of them remains and one of them crumbles. Integrity means that what you are on the outside is consistent with what you are on the inside. Or let me say it like this. The Sunday morning 10 a.m. you is consistent with the Monday morning 10 a.m., the Tuesday morning 10 a.m., the Wednesday, <laughs> did I lose anybody yet? The Wednesday morning 10 a.m., the Thursday morning 10 a.m. That's what true integrity means. That who you are on your job, that you're not cussing somebody out, reading them the right act, and telling them they're good for nothing, and then walking in and praising God like, oh, you're the holiest thing since Jesus himself. And if you say, ah, well, okay, let me bring it down a little closer to home. That means you're not at home acting a jerk to your family either all the time. Everybody has their moments, okay? Everybody, every, we're, all, we're all a work in progress, right? Every one of us. But that means you're not treating your wife or your husband like trash or your kids like trash and then coming in and acting all holy. No, that's not integrity. Integrity that is what you are behind closed doors is what you are in the eye of the public as well. And God anoints integrity and character over competency. God reveals his choice, and I'm closing with this. He searches for the son that Jesse had forgotten. Jesse overlooks all, he overlooks everything about this kid. Jesse's youngest son, he's an afterthought in all this drama that's playing out. All the other sons were rejected one by one. I mean, imagine all the sons getting stood up one by one before the prophet. He's got this horn of oil in his hand. He's getting ready to anoint the next king. And everyone, God says, nope, 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 nope. And even the tone they used about David was, was so dismissive. Verse 11 of chapter 16. Samuel says to Jesse, are all the young men here? And then he said, this is his own dad. He says, there remains yet the youngest. And, and he, there he is keeping sheep. Like he's an afterthought even to his dad. And Samuel says to Jesse, send for him. We're not even going to sit down until he makes everybody stand at attention. Until David gets there. And, and while we think keeping sheep and shepherding is like this noble idea, it wasn't. It was like a dirty job in these times. It was an unclean. It was a... It was, it was a a disreputable job in, in, at this particular time. And they weren't favored. The shepherds weren't favored in, in this society. And, and so they say, go get this, this runt of the litter, David, who is our family shepherd. We've literally put, literally and, and figuratively, put him out to pasture. <laughs> go get him. And, and, and let's, let's bring him in. And when he comes in, he was ruddy with bright eyes. And, and the Lord said, Arise and anoint him. Verse 12. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of all of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. There, there's no ambiguity about God's instructions here, about what God wanted to do and what God was looking for. God says, I'm not going to do what you expect. I'm going to do actually what you least expect. I'm looking for the one that you least expect. And David is the one that I am going to anoint. Hear me. God anoints those who are humble enough to acknowledge their own weaknesses, who are humble enough to rely on his strength. God is not looking for the Eliabs, those ones that think they deserve to be king. God is not looking for the arrogant and the haughty and those who are self-sufficient that they don't need God. God is looking for some people like I know are in this room tonight that say, you know what, I am here because I recognize I need God in my life. I'm not going to be able to live a good life without him. I need the power of God in my life. We don't know his name, but we just know about him. And he's typically just referred to as, as tank man. We don't even know if he's still alive or at what point he passed. But what we do know is that this individual that we call Tank Man, it took profound courage to do what he did. On that spring morning in 1989, when hunger had grown among so many for political and economic reform, the fiscal growth of the nation over the previous decade had exposed 
that there were many in that oppressed country uh, that, that were living under oppression greater than they had even realized. Over a few period of weeks, student protest had erupted in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, China, demanding change in government. The hardliners held their ground and the protests were being literally beat down and stopped by whatever means necessary. And this major crackdown was to begin on June 3rd with columns of tanks advancing towards the protesters and among the protesters and literally crushing some. But after two days of brutal conflicts and terror, the world witnessed this tank man do the unthinkable and this picture is recognizable to most here tonight. He placed himself in the path of an advancing column of tanks and when they tried to steer, he continued to maneuver in front of them. They tried to go around him. He brought the entire might of that military column of tanks to a halt, holding grocery bags in his hands, which by itself suggested that this was not a premeditated act. They didn't wake up that day and say, I'm going to be a hero. Literally going to the grocery store, but found himself in a historic moment and chose to take action. He doesn't look physically imposing. We'll likely never know if he was an intellectual master or if he was a financial genius, if he was a white-collar executive or a blue-collar worker. We'll likely never know. History has hidden all of those details of his story from us, and authorities soon removed him from the place that he stood. But his simple, solitary, courageous act, this unsung hero, not only garnered worldwide attention and criticism to the economic that would lead to economic sanctions from many other countries of the world, it would be this man's actions that were considered a tipping point in that whole political and social saga and drama. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying it's absolutely astounding what an ordinary person can do when they say, I'm going to live by integrity and principles, and I'm not going to do what's convenient, I'm not going to do what's easy, but I am going to reach to do what is right. And when you make up your mind you're going to live like that, just like God anointed David, God will anoint you. Just like God empowered David, God will empower you. I'm telling you tonight, as we stand together, God has big plans for everyone in this room. And if you do it your way, he can reject you like he rejected Saul. But if you do it God's way, his anointing will flow on your life. If you'll do it his way, you've got a bright destiny ahead of you. You've got a purpose ahead of you. You've got the call of God on your life. Somebody lift your hands and your voice and say, Lord, I want your way. Let's close this Bible study tonight by a, a prayer of raised voices saying, Lord, I want your will and your way to be accomplished in my life.